The content found on thebestdayever.com from David Wolf and New Horizon Health, Inc. is for informational purposes only and is in no way intended as medical advice, as a substitute for medical counseling, or as treatment cure for any disease or health condition, and nor should it be construed as such because that would be illegal. Always work with a qualified health professional before making any changes to your diet, supplement use, prescription drug use, lifestyle, or exercise activities. Please understand that you assume all risks from the use, non-use, or misuse of this information. Well, welcome everyone. This is your host, Lucian Gothier, and I am here with a very esteemed and honored guest, Dr. William Davis. He is the author of the phenomenal book, Wheat Belly, Lose the Wheat lose the weight, and find your path back to health. Dr. Davis, it's a real honor to have you here today. So many people from around the world, not just in America, are reading this book, and they're really coming to understand the truth behind the wheat that they're eating and how it's causing them tremendous amount of health problems. So thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you. My first question for you, Dr. Davis, is in your book, Wheat Belly, you talk about the really big difference between the wheat that we're eating today as opposed to the wheat that our grandparents or great-grandparents ate and how this new form of wheat is responsible for all the oversized waistlines and your really high blood sugar levels and causing so many problems for people. So let's talk about this new wheat, what it is, how it came into being, and, and what's going on with wheat. You know, the, the efforts to change wheat were well-intended, Lucian. This was not an evil plot. It was all part of an effort to increase uh, yields per acre. So wheat started out, traditional wheat started out in the mid-20th century as a four-and-a-half or five-foot-tall uh, plant that yielded only modest uh, yields per acre. Extensive changes were introduced into this plant, repetitive hybridization, crossing wheat with other grasses, because wheat is really the seed of a grass. People forget that. This is a grass, as are corn and, and rice, by the way. They are seeds of grasses. So a- agricultural scientists were unhappy with what nature had done and wanted to increase the yield per acre. So they performed uh, these crossings with wild grasses and multiple hybridizations and generated the high-yield semi-dwarf strain. That is this strain of wheat that stands 18 to 24 inches. The characteristic of, of the dwarf height was introduced because of a, mute, a mutation. Uh, a mutation, by the way, in the gibberellin gene. Uh, and that's what, that's what we have now. We have a, a modern strain of wheat that has uh, multiple mutations built into it. Now, it didn't stop at those efforts. Those are the efforts of the 1970s. There have been additional efforts, such as more recent efforts to uh, induce other kinds of mutations using methods such as chemical gamma ray and x-ray mutagenesis, the purposeful induction of mutations. For instance, there is a strain of wheat that is resistant to the herbicide beyond or amizomox, much as there's a strain of corn that's resistant to glyphosate or Roundup, uh, though that corn was created using genetic modification, genetic engineering techniques, gene splicing to insert or remove a gene. This strain of wheat was not created using genetic modification. It was created using mutagenesis. And so, ironically, the uh, agriculture industry says our our wheat, our it's called Clearfield wheat, it's a branded, uh, patent-protected strain of wheat that grows now at about a million acres in the Pacific Northwest. The uh, manufacturer, the, uh, the holder of the patent of the seeds, says we did not use genetic mo- uh, uh, modification to create this strain of uh, herbicide-resistant wheat. What they don't tell you is they used techniques that were crude, imprecise, and often worse than genetic modification in inducing mutations that were unanticipated, unmapped, uh, because 
agricultural geneticists really don't care about those things. They introduce changes for their own purposes or their own ambitions, like increased yield per acre, or it might be resistance to drought or resistance to higher or lower temperature or pest resistance, mold resistance, insects, etc. They change a plant for those reasons. They don't map out the other changes that may have occurred as long as the plant still performs as expected. That is, in the case of wheat, provides rolls, breads, and pancake mixes uh, like it's supposed to. And those other changes are simply not sought. And then this stuff is sold to the public with no, no effort whatsoever at safety testing in animals. Humans, of course, never nor any effort to biochemically or genetically map the changes introduced. So this is true for a lot of foods, not just wheat, but wheat happens to be at the top of the list for uh, mutations induced. Uh, and so we have an unwitting public consuming these foods that have been changed. We're seeing this show up in many different ways, and, uh, such as increased allergies in children. Uh, so it's showing up many, many unanticipated, unexpected ways. And people are looking at themselves and wondering why all these crazy things are happening because of the change introduced by agribusiness. And Dr. Davis, do you attribute people's extra waistlines and the effect it's having on people on the mutagenesis that's been done to wheat? Or do you also contribute it to the overconsumption of wheat because of the mass yields that are being produced now? Or, or is it some combination of the two? <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> so one of the important changes introduced into modern wheat is a change in the amino acid structure of the protein gliadin. So wheat, seed, the seed of this grass called wheat, is essentially indigestible. So wheat, the whole plant is indigestible. We can't eat the stalk, we can't eat the leaves, we can't eat the roots. Right? Ruminants can because they have, like cows, they have special evolutionarily acquired adaptations such as continuously growing teeth. We only grow teeth twice in our lifetimes. They produce about 100 liters of saliva a day compared to our one liter of saliva. They have a four-compartment stomach. One compartment has an abrasive function uh, to, to grind down the grasses, and then they, chew, they, they choke up a cud to, to re-chew. They have a spiral colon compared to our kind of relatively linear straight colon with a couple of turns. They also have unique microorganisms in both their stomach and their colon that, that helps them digest these grasses. We have none of those adaptations. So we can't eat the grasses of the world. We found out we can consume just the seed. So, But in the seed even, even in the part we can eat and survive acutely, many components in the seed are indigestible to humans. So one of the proteins changed by the efforts of agribusiness is this protein gliadin. Well, it remains relatively indigestible. And if it remains intact, it's about 260 amino acids long. It's rather lengthy. If it remains intact, it causes abnormal increased bowel permeability. Uh, that's the first step, by the way, in autoimmune diseases, triggering autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis. Now, some of the gliadin, though, is degraded, but poorly, into small pieces, small peptides, about five amino acids long. And many of those amino acids act as opiates. They bind to the opiate receptors of the human brain. And when they do so, they stimulate appetite. So we know that all opiates, Lucian, all opiates, heroin, morphine, oxycontin, stimulate appetite, in addition to providing euphoria and pain relief. Well, the opiate mix in in wheat derived from the gliadin peptides don't give us pain relief nor euphoria, 
They only stimulate appetite. And they stimulate appetite, oddly, for carbohydrates specifically. So we desire more cupcakes and cookies and chips to the tune of about 400 calories per day, 365 days per year. So the introduction of modern high-yield semi-dwarf wheat, created in the 1970s, but widely disseminated into the food supply in the U.S. and Canada in the mid-1980s, early to mid-1980s, that the introduction of that kind of wheat coincides perfectly with an abrupt increase in calorie intake of 400 calories per day. It also marks the start of the overweight and obesity crisis as well as the diabetes epidemic that we now have way out of control. So that glide, the gliadin protein that stimulates appetite, it also causes addictive behavior in people. And we see this in its most extreme form in people with binge eating disorder and bulimia because that those gliadin-derived opiates provoke food obsessions, 24-hour-a-day intrusive food obsessions. So, but in uh, everyday people, it causes appetite. Now, there's another, a couple other effects. The embolopectin A, that's the carbohydrate unique to wheat. It's the carbohydrate that accounts for the fact that two slices of whole wheat bread raise blood sugar higher than six teaspoons of table sugar. Dietitians forget this when they tell us to eat a diet rich in healthy whole grains. They're in effect telling us to consume a diet rich in something that has extravagant capacity to raise blood sugar. There's a third effect. There's another undigestible protein, very large four-part protein called wheat germagglutinin. It is completely indigestible. If I had a, a, a beaker or a glass full of stomach acid, hydrochloric acid, uh, if I put my finger in it, it'll dissolve my finger within minutes. If I put wheat germagglutinin in it, it is untouched by stomach acid. So we ingest something made of wheat. We thereby ingest this wheat germagglutinin, which blocks the leptin hormone, the hormone of satiety. So it turns off you from knowing when to stop eating. So we, we have these effects, these, these three effects that cause increased consumption of carbohydrates, a two-hour cycle of blood sugar uh, fluctuations, and that low blood sugar that occurs at about 90 to 120 minutes is when you're ravenous again, and then the turning, turning off of satiety. So that's why I call modern wheat the perfect obesogen, the perfect thing to make a population overweight and fat. That would seem to explain why people have such a tough time dieting when getting off wheat. They turn to things like a smoothie or a green drink or something that's not as filling. It doesn't have that dense amount of carbohydrates that's going to spike the blood sugar. So invariably, once they do their morning drink, whatever their special diet is to try to lose weight, Within 20, 30, 40 minutes, they have an overwhelming feeling to fill their belly with something that's going to really spike their blood sugar. Exactly. So, you know, many of these diets, so-called diets, um, so I don't really regard what I say so much as a diet, uh, more of an articulation of what has been done by agribusiness to this plant called wheat and why it does not belong in the human food supply. But a lot of diets danced around this issue and almost got it right. Adkins, South Beach... Um, uh, some of the elimination diets. Unfortunately, they, they, they eliminated grains and wheat. Of course, by, by grains, we almost always mean wheat. Very few people are having millet for breakfast or sorghum with dinner. For all practical purposes, grains usually mean wheat. 
an ironic illusion, in the later phases of all those diets, they all agree. You know, after you've lost your weight and you feel better, add back those healthy whole grains. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, uh, then people regain the weight, they have health problems, and so they came so darn close to understanding it, but didn't quite get it. Uh, so that's all I've done. I've, I've, uh, stepped back and looked at all these diets. I looked at what agribusiness had been doing. I talked to agricultural geneticists, and I tried to understand the whole issue because I did not know how to explain the fact that when I did this in patients face to face, and to online followers of this of this message, I didn't know why I saw astounding reductions in weight, reductions in appetite, and reversals of multiple health conditions. I didn't understand until I came to understand that geneticists had been very busy people, changing the genetics and the biochemistry of this plant, and thereby the effects on humans who consume it. And Dr. Davis, is there any nutritional benefit whatsoever in eating wheat or a little bit of wheat, or are we talking about completely eliminating it from the diet? Well, I think we, we, the, the true path to success is complete elimination. Uh, not to say there aren't beneficial things in wheat. There are. There are B vitamins and there's fiber, though it's mostly uh, insoluble wood-like cellulose fiber. Uh, but there are indeed some good things. You know, there are good things in tobacco, too. There are, there are some good nutrients in tobacco, but the entire package, of course, is awful. It's corrupt and awful for humans. And the same thing with, with modern wheat. Yes, there are some good things. Now, you, you, you raise an important point. Are you okay just cutting back? If you cut back, say, by 70%, are you 70% better? No. It's not a whole lot different than cutting back in your smoking by 70%. Are you thereby uh, 70% better? No. Mm -hmm. The effects are so overwhelming. You remain addicted, for one, uh, and you are still exposed to substantial increase in lung cancer, heart disease. Likewise here, if you cut back, you're still exposed to the appetite-stimulating effect of the gliadin-derived opiates. You're still exposed to the abnormal increase in uh, intestinal permeability that starts the roller coaster to autoimmune conditions. You're still exposed to the wheat germ agglutinin. That's a bowel toxin that blocks the leptin hormone and blocks the hormone cholecystokinin. Cholecystokinin is the hormone released by the duodenum, by the uh, just after the stomach, if I eat protein fat, because it tells your gallbladder to release some bile to help digest fats. And it tells your pancreas to release pancreatic enzymes for digestion. Well, in the presence of wheat germagglutinin, the cholecystokinin receptor is blocked. And so bile doesn't come out quite as effectively. You get bile stasis over time, gallstones. It blocks release pancreatic enzymes, so you have less efficient digestion. You get heartburn. You get acid reflux. You can get bowel urgency. You can even get um, remnants of undigested food passing out in your stool, and that over time encourages growth of abnormal bacteria, which is a very bad condition called dysbiosis or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, which has a whole list of implications for health of, of its own. But at the root cause of this is consumption of, of wheat. What makes it so astounding, Lucian, is that this thing so bad started bad, made much worse by the efforts of agribusiness, no questions asked by our own USDA, yet we're told that it should dominate our diet. You know, it'd be bad enough 
it'd be bad enough if the USDA said something like, well, you know, we've examined the evidence, and we're not sure if it's safe to eat wheat. That would be bad enough. But they don't say that, of course. They say, you should eat as much as you can every day at every meal. And, of course, all we have to do is look around and see what the consequences of that awful uh, advice is. We have the world's worst epidemic of obesity and overweight. We have the world's worst epidemic of diabetes ever witnessed in the history of mankind. We have explosions in autoimmune diseases, uh, including, by the way, type 1 diabetes in children is as sharply on the rise as is type 2 diabetes in children and in, in adults. Inflammatory bowel diseases like ulcerative colitis and Crohn's are on the increase. Uh, ADHD and autism are on the increase. Psychiatric illness on the increase. Dementia on the increase. All perfectly coincident with the advice from our own government agencies to consume this thing called modern wheat. And we also know when you take wheat out of the diet, calorie consumption goes down 400 calories per day. Mm. And in the studies we have, uh, they vary, of course, different populations, different times, different uh, centers. But when we take wheat out of the diet, uh, the average weight loss is about 26 pounds in the first six months. So we have a, a, a body of nutritional thinking based on flawed logic, Lucian. They all, all the 14 epidemiologic studies that purport to demonstrate the health benefits of healthy whole grains really did nothing of the sort. What they showed was that if you replace something bad, white flour products, with something less bad, whole wheat, whole grains, and there's an apparent health benefit, and there is, less diabetes, less heart disease, less weight gain, less colon cancer, by the logic of nutrition, a whole bunch of the less bad thing must therefore be good. So, so <laughs> to, to, to highlight the silliness of this logic, I, I use this uh, analogy. Well, if that's true, if that sort of logic is true, well, then we should be able to take unfiltered cigarettes, something bad, put a filter on it, filtered cigarettes, something less bad. By the logic of nutrition, you and I should smoke Salem's <laughs> for, for health <laughs> and be told to smoke a lot of them. <laughs> of course, that's silly, but uh, that is exactly the kind of flawed logic used in nutrition. You'll see that, by the way, used over and over and over again. If you replace high glycemic index foods with low glycemic index foods and there's a benefit, you, must, you should eat a bunch of low glycemic index foods. What they didn't tell you is that low glycemic index foods are misnamed. They should be called less high glycemic index foods. But they still raise your blood sugar sky high. So that if 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 your listeners uh, just bear that one simple uh, 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 piece of logic in mind, that less bad is not necessarily good, they will see that so much in nutritional advice is flawed because it's based on flawed logic. I know a lot of people are into health and nutrition, and the first thing they do is cut out soda. And if I'm talking to a family member or a friend and they're asking for some health advice, the first thing I always say is to cut out all soda. And for myself, I haven't had a soda in almost a decade, but I can't say the same about wheat, something like bread. It doesn't seem to be as bad as soda, so there hasn't been that same level of vigilance, per se, for a lot of people to cut that out, just like they would cut out soda. It's either got to be the wheat or the soda. Which one is it? <laughs> <laughs> I would say get rid of the wheat because if you get rid of soda, you get rid of sugar and calories in the aspartame and the diet sodas and the carbonation that has uh, implications for disrupting your pH and bone health. 
uh, you might lose a few pounds. Um, you'll have uh, less tooth decay, and that's it. That's the end of the story. If you get rid of wheat, you lose weight. You lose a lot of weight. You lose uh, the ab- abnormal triggering of appetite. You lose the process that leads to autoimmune diseases. Depression can lift. Children with ADHD and autism have improved behavior and longer attention spans. People with rheumatoid arthritis can obtain relief. People with asthma can throw away their asthma inhalers often. People with uh, lupus and polymyalgia rheumatica can have dramatic relief. People with neurological impairment can have dramatic relief. In other words, uh, yes, you lose a few pounds, etc., but you have a transformation in health that does not occur with elimination of sugar. And, funny thing, people who have sweet tooth, I believe, most of the time have what I call a wheat tooth. That is, their desire for sodas, candy, and goodies is really a response to the appetite stimulation of all the components of wheat. Because if you get rid of, get rid of wheat, and it's glidin-derived opiates, it's two-hour fluctuation of hunger, and it's leptin-blocking by the uh, wheat germagglutinin, you lose your appetite for sweets. In fact, people who are wheat-free typically say this. You know, I used to love such-and-such such a candy bar, and I thought I'd treat myself that I've been good and I've lost 28 pounds and I'm feeling great. So I had a bite of that candy bar that I used to love, and it was sickeningly sweet. I couldn't even eat it. And so uh, that sweet tooth nearly always goes away with elimination of the inciting food that is modern wheat. 